everyone, I'm Riyad Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. What a perfect time and what a great honor to host Shaya Ayodele today. She's a partner at Leaders Quest, an organization to which I met her actually in a few years back when they came to Istanbul to plan a program, which happened a bit after. Leaders Quest is a wonderful community and a company that works at the nexus of strategy, culture, and purpose. They focus on leadership development, corporate purpose, and system-wide collaboration. Shayo is responsible for design client programs, which she delivered in Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. She's led a number of LQ's systemic change projects. We'll talk about a lot of that today as well. She also played a key role in the Banking Futures Initiative, which brought together leaders from some of the UK's largest banks and institutional investors and other financial and civil society experts to kind of create a roadmap to a healthier banking system. Uh, she's also developed initiatives that were focused on addressing imbalances in the food system. And additionally, she, well, there's a lot that she does, which is amazing. She's passionate about strengthening the links between business and society. She cares deeply about sustainability and equality. And while I was preparing for the podcast, I just found out so many more amazing initiatives that she's involved in, uh, which just, I was blown away. And I, and I was so happy that uh, she accepted to be with me here today. She also, in addition to her role at Leaders Quest, uh, sits on the advisory board of Greenwood Place, which is an organization advising clients about philanthropy that can be um, entrepreneurial and measurable. She's also on the advisory board of Drivers for Change, which inspires young leaders to lead positive change in their neighborhoods. She previously ran Cooking Mama, a social enterprise that trained migrant women to lead cookery classes for the local community. And um, another fun, exciting endeavor that she started on her own related to ethical travel. We will talk about all of it. Literally, before we started recording, we said, let's just kind of uh, catch up, except we caught up for 25 minutes and talked about amazing things, which I regret now not having recorded, but we'll, we'll get to all of that. I am first going to start by welcoming you and saying how happy I am that you're here with me today and by asking, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you, Riada. Um, what an introduction. <laughs> That's all you. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
great to be here. Um, I'm doing really well. I, um, it's a beautiful sunny day in London. And so that always lifts my mood because anybody who's been here knows we have very few of those. Uh, and I'm just really excited for the conversation and, and to reconnect with you after so many years. So it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive in. Um, in the face of so many persisting challenges that we've known, but also considering the new ones in terms of just seemingly ever more declining trust, ever worsening climate change, ever rising authoritarianism around the world, and now with the global pandemic related to COVID-19, how is it impacting businesses and how are they having to change? Yeah, I mean, it's it's having a massive impact on businesses. You know, I've spent the last 10 years of my career working directly with businesses, helping them think about the role that they play in society. And I think that question has never been more urgent today. Um, I've been lucky to be in an organization where we, you know, it's sort of self-selecting, right? The types of people that come to us mm -hmm. are often thinking about those questions already. Uh, but I think what's happening in business is that everybody is realizing that they need to be thinking about their role in society. You know, previously, there's a very famous quote from Milton Friedman that says the business of business is business. And I think what businesses are realizing is that all of these things, all of our society, all of our, 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 our world is interconnected. So to take the few things you mentioned, the pandemic, authoritarianism, climate change, it's very hard almost impossible, I would say, for a business to just step back from that. It affects your supply chain. It affects everything about how you operate. It affects your customers. You know, they have to think about how to engage. It's not optional anymore. And so I think what's happening is that businesses are realizing, you know, we really need to step up and not just pay lip service to things like racial justice or climate justice. We need to actually take action and be, be engaged citizens in the communities that we are a part of, in the communities that we ultimately serve, because that's what will give us security as a business. That's what will give us longevity as a business. And I'm really excited about that because I've always thought, you know, that capitalism plays a massive role in driving innovation um, and in driving really prosperity across society, as long as we can leverage it to be a positive force for good. And I think businesses are starting to really ask themselves those questions in part because they have to. Yeah, um, related to that, I saw that you wrote a nice uh, post that was published in October, 2019, uh, which kind of was prescient before the lockdown even happened, but it was exactly about the, how can companies serve all of their stakeholders? And you wrote four key takeaways. So I'd love you to um, kind of just maybe a little bit more elaborate on that because it was based on that huge statement, which the business roundtable, right? Which is that look, a business lobby group that represents some of the world's most influential companies like Apple or Pepsi or um, JP Morgan Chase, they put out a public statement, right? Um, what, what was that statement about and how do you see um, a little, you touched a little bit upon it, but who are, where does this demand come from as well? Yeah. Yeah. About the change of business and the purpose. Absolutely. So, so the business roundtable, which, as you said, is is many of the iconic companies that all of us will be familiar with um, in in the U.S., put out a statement last August, basically saying that they recognized that shareholder primacy essentially needed to evolve. Right. So businesses um, 
you know, in the sort of Milton Friedman-esque style, were really sort of singularly focused on shareholder return and on short-term return. That, that was the core of what drove decision-making and everything that they did. And so the business roundtable statement was really significant because it essentially had all these businesses come together and say, we are moving from that singular focus on shareholder return as to what drives our decision-making. And we're broadening that out to recognizing that we have to serve all of our stakeholders. And those stakeholders include our customers, it includes our employees, it includes the environment. And it means that every decision that we make will actually take into account all of those different elements. And you know that is really, really powerful because the moment you start looking at how some of your business decisions will impact the climate or will impact your employees, you have to start thinking differently about these things if it's more than just profit. And in terms of what's driving that, I think it's a number of different factors. So Certainly, we've seen, uh, you know, employees from many of these companies, most famously Google, um, basically coming together and saying, I don't want to work for a company that isn't aligned with my values. And a lot of companies really today want a culture where their employees feel comfortable speaking up. And what happens is that they then tell you what they think, right? And a lot of Google employees are basically coming together saying, you have to do something about climate change. You have to do something about racial justice. So a lot of it is coming from employees. A lot of it is coming from investors. Um, so, you know, money is very powerful in our society. And if investors are saying, hey, you better think about some of this, these challenges in society, I think they will have a material impact on how much money I can make from putting my money in your company. Um, that is, you know, a lot of investors are pushing their, their businesses to think about climate change because it has a material impact on their supply chain, for example. So that is a massive factor. And then the final one I would say is, you know, in the climate space where I work anyway, a lot of it is just the powerful voice of the next generation. You know, we've seen youth movements all over the world stepping up and standing up and giving us that sort of really beautiful moral clarity that basically says, I'm not encumbered by, quote unquote, the way the world works. I don't care if you know, it's really difficult for businesses to actually shift and, and evolve their business models to stop harming the climate. Mm -hmm. I know that this is the right thing to do, and I am going to be out on the streets protesting every day to call for that. So it's both the sort of activism element of that, but I cannot tell you how many CEOs that, that I have met or that others around me have met who say, the reason I'm thinking about climate change in a really serious and robust way is because my daughter came home and said to me, what are you doing about this issue? This kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, moral clarity, as I put it earlier, from the young generation, I think is having a really powerful mm. impact on businesses all over the world. And of course, they're the consumers of the future. You can't discount that either. But Oh, that's such an amazing point. Um, and I, I mean, you, we're speaking about business right now, but also, and you mentioned protests, but um, what comes to my mind is the youth everywhere around the world, in the Middle East, uh, you know, Northern Africa, Latin America, truly, truly. And this is, you know, sometimes we talk uh, about millennials and I'm one of them um, about, you know, in a 
in a kind of pejorative way, but they really bring um, an energy into all this activism world. And sometimes in ways that we don't think about, like daughters or you know children of uh, some people who really could make an impact. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And um, you, I saw that in March 2020, Leaders Quest also published a report entitled Harnessing Private Sector Purpose to Achieve the Global Goals, which was done for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which sets out, as you say, uh, as it stated, uh, the prevailing purpose landscape and offers clear-cut ways for business to ramp up its efforts. Can we talk just a little bit about it? In a way, I was really curious about these clear ways, because I think there's a theoretical part in that we all can agree or could agree, many of us, on what should happen, but then a lot of businesses and private sector, as well as public, but here we're talking private, don't even know how to get there. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about this report? And I guess it's based on Leaders Quest experience and expertise as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so the report was basically outlining, you know, the reason that Leaders Quest exists really is to build a more sustainable and equitable world. And that's very aligned with um, everything that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is trying to do in the world with regards to the sustainable development goals. So it really sets out the fact that on many of the issues we care about, whether that's climate change or equality, um, we're falling behind. And as I said earlier, you know, business is a fundamental part of the solution here. Um, and so we we really wanted to explore how can we harness the power of business, the incredible scale of business to help us um, close the gap between where we are today and where we need to get to. Of course, many sectors can play a role, but we believe that business has an incredible opportunity and they're waking up to that. So how do we leverage that um, moment and, and that opportunity? So some of the ways that we think about this is, you know, all of the work we do comes back to leadership. Um, so we we deliberately work at the highest levels of companies first um, to really get CEOs, boards, and senior teams really first aligned with their own leadership. Um, that is one of the fundamental tools in all of this is, is getting people to connect back to their own sense of who they are, their values, why they do what they do, what kind of legacy they want to leave behind. Because it's very easy to say, you know, I want to be, we want to be a business that's doing good in the world. Okay, great. But when push comes to shove, ultimately, you will go back to that sort of short-termist pull that our society is so used to. So we try to really ground that statement in, you know, what does that mean to you as an individual person? Forget the fact that you're a CEO for a second or that you're a senior leader in, in a business. How does this connect to who you are, the values that you have as an individual, the, to your children, you know, as we were just talking about? That's a very powerful pull for people. What kind of world do you want to leave for your children? So getting the leadership really aligned and, and connected to their own sense of personal purpose is very, very powerful. And everything I would say really stems from that. Um, you know, really then connecting into how do you make this part of the core of your business? I'll give you one example of this is Unilever. Um, they have been extremely successful at doing this in part because of Paul Pullman's leadership. He's such an iconic CEO because a lot of this was driven by his personal sense of um, this is the right thing to do. This is the legacy I want. And then figuring out, well, what does it mean for our business model? 
And how do we marry both business and our responsibility to society while recognizing that we can do that in a way that will um, enable us to actually generate more economic success in the long term. But we have to think differently about how we measure things. So it all stems from that sense of leadership, that sense of per personal purpose, and then taking it out into the business. Um, and of course, bringing your employees on board as well. And, and that's what that report was all about. Yeah, and I've seen in, um, in person, the magic results of really having those very powerful leaders of companies in an environment where they're not usually um, accustomed to be both vulnerable and hear perspectives of others that are um, eye-opening in ways that it's kind of opening your chakras that you didn't know existed within you because you were taught to operate in only a single framework. And I've seen from your company and um, some immediate results from comments of people you know, where I um, attended, how, how that is really powerful. And we don't, people, when I say we, I mean those of us who are not directly and constantly involved in that world, don't forget or we don't get to think about precisely these things, um, how these people who work at the highest levels are still humans who yeah. are, I'm going to say this, moldable in a way that, you know, there are things that could be revived or reawakened. And it is the frameworks of operation that companies like you tend to kind of change in more positive direction. And that kind of leads me to the next question. Of course, considering your own experience and you've seen firsthand how both there is a demand and also new drive to create these more purposeful organizations. I believe that, um, and I believe that's obvious and has become more obvious in many industries, but more specifically now, I wanted to ask you, let's focus on ethical consumption with a particular focus on ethical travel. I've recently learned that is a personal passion of yours. And honestly, I had to really Google it. And I was like, wow, this is so important. Why did we, it, but but I didn't think about it consciously. So I, I had no idea, of course, that you actually founded the initiative called Journey Kind. And I would really appreciate if you could tell us a little bit more about that initiative, what inspired you to create it, how's it going, and what are your visions? Yeah, sure. Um, so what inspired me to create it was as many of this, these things happen, it, it came really out of an experience that I had. Um, my husband was living in Kenya. I'm terrible with dates, so I have no idea what year this was. I think it was 2015, 2016, something like that. Um, and we decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro together. And I, because we, I had visited him in Kenya and we had some friends who did it and they sort of said in passing, you know, we were climbing the mountain and some of the conditions for the guides were really horrible, you know, unclear whether they were getting enough food, they didn't have the right equipment. And in some extreme cases, some of the guides had actually passed away because as you can imagine, it's, it's an arduous mountain, right? Some of the conditions are snowy. You need proper food and fuel to get up a mountain in the best of times, let alone a seven day trek. So I knew I didn't want to be a part of that. Um, and so I started looking around online to see, can I find a company that would guarantee that it would pay my guides well and feed them well and all the things that, you know, we would assume would be normal. And I did research and I couldn't find anything. And I would call people and they would give me sort of cagey answers. 
And then eventually I found a company, amazing company called Fair Travel, which I would recommend to anybody who is crazy enough to think about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, But it took me six weeks to do that. And I just really thought that was way too long. I almost lost patience and decided not to go. And I think more importantly, when I got to the mountain and we started climbing and I was looking around and on the day we were starting, there were probably a hundred other backpackers, hikers who were climbing the mountain with a variety of different companies. And I just thought to myself, if all of these people had gone through the process I went through, where they just happened to overhear somebody talking about some of the negative impact of our tourism in this in this region, mm-hmm. wouldn't they want to make the same choice? Wouldn't they want to spend their money supporting a company that they knew was actually doing something good? Mm-hmm. But it's so it's difficult, right? It's really, really hard to find those ethical consumption choices. And it's really, really challenging to not just book the first thing on Google, right? So that's what led me to the idea that if I could create, because I'm really passionate about travel, it's such a core part of my identity, my work, my life. Um, and so I felt like if I could make it easier, if I could make that six week, six week window into one hour, or ideally one click, um, you know, vetted ethical travel experiences where you know that your money is is providing social and economic uh, positive input, that would be really powerful. Um, so that was the inspiration for Journey Kind. And I mean, that exactly like I said, when you told me I had to Google and then I discovered and you've changed my world now. Now that I think about all of that, I will be thinking about these things. And it was interesting while researching, I read a couple of articles and it really struck me. Basically, in one of them, it said advocates for ethical travel don't want tourists to stop having fun. They just want them to think the way that you described, where's the money going for and how is it, you know, uh, how is that time and money that you are um, spending being used in a way to travel ethically. So that was really, and and then I wanted to ask you about this though. There was an article in New York Times published. It was entitled, When If Ever Is Unethical to Visit a Country? Mm. And I thought that was an interesting twist on things as well. And in that article, it was about the seven well-traveled writers. They were kind of discussing this dilemma or whether or not to visit nations with oppressive governments, for example. So um, it, it was really interesting because as it's stated in the article, it made me think, it said, the 21st century traveler is more knowledgeable than ever before. She must engage in the ethics of where she visits and why. This means that even the casual traveler also faces an ethical dilemma when she chooses where to visit. What about a country's treatment of minorities? What about its freedom of speech or the transparency of its government? And if we do go to a country ruled by a despot or military junta, will our currency benefit the nation's citizens or only the regime that oppresses them. Wow, I thought that was so powerful and complicated. And the answers below, actually, from these seven well-traveled writers were reflecting this um, complication. Because first of all, we're all different. We all have different values that we want to, you know, kind of respect and aspire. And uh, it's it's not it's not simple. But I thought when we speak about this ethical travel, one thing. And one on the spectrum of it, one thing is, for example, like you're speaking about these 
people and workers who are helping, you know, to climb on the Kilimanjaro, et cetera, in terms of their labor recompensation. And then you get this whole higher level of philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about that. It's really, really fascinating. I haven't read that article, so please send it to me. Send it to you, totally, yeah. I'm curious to see what what they came up with. Mm -hmm. I think for me, the important thing is that we're asking these questions. Mm -hmm. So that is that is fundamental. You know, we live in such a, a click to buy culture that most of the time we're we're on autopilot, right? We're not really thinking about the impact of our consumption, as you said, whether that's travel or whether our you know clothes are made in a sweatshop or not. We're just in this sort of click to buy culture. So I think the stepping back and engaging with some of these questions is a critical first step. And then I think, as you said, everyone is different. So what we are trying to say at JourneyKind is not, you know, this is the way to travel. We're trying to say, just be mindful of your travel, you know, really think about where's my money going. Um, I've, you know, read a report, which is a few years old now, that says only 5% of the money we spend as tourists stays in the local economy, globally. Uh I think that's crazy. (laughs) Where does it, where does it go? Most of it is just spent in and companies that have local bases, but are owned by, you know, either international companies or international people, essentially. So, so I think it's that sense of what is it that I actually want my money to support Mm -hmm. and making sure to the best of your ability as well, because some of this is very, very complicated. And as you said, it's not about taking the joy out of tourism. It's actually the opposite. Very often when you really look out for those more localized experiences, you find something more unique, you find something more interesting, you find something more personalized. So I think it's really, it's really about that awareness and then the intentionality of how you want to travel being, being the center of how you make those decisions as opposed to just the next shiny thing on Instagram. Um, And it's a really interesting question about, you know, um, whether you should visit countries with authoritarian regimes. I sometimes, I mean, I want to read the article, so I don't want to, but I sometimes, when people say that, I I almost want to throw back the question around, you know, the U.S. has so many tourists visit, and I'm not saying anything, obviously, I think everybody probably, argument like that, (laughs) but, you know, that's also a country that has racial issues that many people would liken to, you know, the equivalent of a, a, a terrible regime, if you take just what Black people experience in America, um, or what women experience in terms of the way that their rights are curtailed, the, the right to sort of own and decide what to do with their own body. So how do you how do you draw that line? And I don't want to I don't want to you know equivocate between like actual authoritarian regimes in the U.S. That's not what I'm trying to do. And I think it's really important to step back and say each person should be able to judge for themselves what it is they think is important. And there are no simple answers here in in my view. So that awareness and decision-making from a place of intention and and research is really important. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, So I'll send you that article after this, which which completely opened new ways of thinking about uh, how complicated um, 
this this all is and it takes so many directions i don't even want i mean i i recently read and i speak a lot uh with my sister about fast fashion and sustainable fashion and the complications that that go related to that in terms of individual choices that we want to uh make but then also the whole system that would need to change in a way that's more sustainable, but also more affordable for those people who want to make those ethical choices. Yeah. yeah. In a way that right now the gap is so huge um, that, you know, but that's, that's a story of its own, but it speaks about the complications in this ethical cons- consumption as well. Yeah. So you, you did mention a little bit earlier, and I am aware the Leaders Quest has for, year, for years now taken a serious leadership role in raising awareness on climate change and the impact for businesses and, well, for all of us citizens of the world and this planet for that matter. And uh, Lindsay Levine, who is the founder of the Leaders Quest, has worked uh, hard to found Countdown, which is a global initiative, uh, just to tell our listeners, powered by TED and Future Stewards, co-founded by LQ, to champion and accelerate solutions to the climate crisis and turning um, these ideas into action. Tell us a little bit more, but actually just yesterday, there was the global launch of the Countdown, right, with an amazing line. I, I, I watched a little bit. And then I thought and hoped that it will be still posted online so that I could keep seeing in, in uh, instances and particles. And it was a live stream global events that kind of featured talks from everybody in terms of leading climate activists and businesses and researchers and scientists. But tell us a little bit more about, I'm not even going to say because this is so politicized why we should all care about climate change. Uh, uh, to me, it's obvious, but I understand how cognitive dissonance and you know works in this situation and how it's politicized. But from your experience and from Leaders Quest initiatives and your own involvement with the UN Climate Change Conference, um, which is in 2021 and should be, tell us um, how about this initiative and where are we standing right now and what are our chances of moving things in a <laughs> direction that's not kind of dooming? You know? Yeah, that's a lot of questions in there. So I'm going to try to do that justice, but follow up on anything that I miss. Um, so, so climate change is... Uh, I'm trying also not to speak in, in politicized terms, but I actually don't think it's a political issue. It's been it's been it seem that way. I, by, by political, I mean left and right. So, really, clim- the climate crisis, which is what it is, we are at crisis point. To answer your question about where we're at, it's a health crisis. It's an equity crisis. You know, all of this is interconnected. So, I think. I think the way to think about it is that this is not some far off problem in the future that we have to decide whether to be good, do-gooders about. This is not some far off problem that's affecting people in some corner of the world that has nothing to do with us. Let me give you a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. Wildfires in the US are affecting people from all across the political spectrum, from all incomes, and they are directly related to a heating climate, extreme weather events all over the world. This is proven by scientists from across the aisle. Extreme weather events all over the world are accelerating. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, as we've seen with the wildfires in the US, economic damage, social damage to families all over the country 
in a way that will continue to happen because these events are becoming more and more frequent. And of course, we hear about, you know, what's happening in, in for places further afield with hurricanes and cyclones and heat waves in places like Africa and Asia. But this is also becoming a more frequent problem where I live here in the UK. Floods, um, you know, extreme weather events that lead to floods are happening here more and more frequently. So this is an issue that is presenting a sort of economic and health crisis to communities all over the world today. And I think another way to think about it, you know, another sort of core issue is pollution. The WHO said this year that pollution around the world kills seven to eight million people every year. And that is a direct result of the way that fossil fuels um, drive our economy. That's killing people. So I think that climate change and the way to really make it connect with people is to, is to make us recognize that this is a health crisis. It's an equity crisis. It's a generational challenge crisis and that it's happening here today, now, and it's really, really urgent. But that's how I would respond to that, that piece. Um, in terms of Countdown and, and Leaders Quest and the work that we're trying to do to address this. So Countdown launched yesterday, as, as you said, and it was amazing. It is online, it's on YouTube. You should definitely go and watch it. Um, and what it's trying to do is accelerate solutions to the climate crisis. Um, and it's doing that in a really, really interesting and unique way. So yesterday we had everyone from uh, Johan Rockström, who is one of the most prominent climate scientists um, in the world, through to the Pope, through to Jaden Smith, Will Smith's son. I mean, he's famous in his own right, but he's Will Smith's son. Through to um, Chris Hemsworth, who's a famous actor. Through to Amanda Gorman, who is the youngest U.S. Poet Laureate of the world. So it was a really beautiful um, conversation, I would say, that brought to life this idea that climate is an issue that connects all disciplines, all issues. And because of that, the solutions will also connect all disciplines, all issues. And uh, Countdown is really trying to bring those solutions to bear. It's looking at five specific sectors. So yesterday was just a launch uh, of the conversation, but over the next year in the energy, transport, food, um, built environment, which is essentially the buildings we all live in and nature-based solutions. And those five areas we know are, are the key sort of um, sectors that we need to think about in terms of addressing the, the climate crisis and accelerating some solutions. Over the next year, Countdown is gonna bring together that. Um, collaborative uh, of, of different types of actors from different sectors to work together and figure out what do we need to do in the energy space to rapidly decarbonize as quickly as possible? What do we need to do with our cities to make sure that the air is clean and that we can breathe um, and that our children's children can breathe clean air and that we can enjoy the experience of living in cities? So it's going to take those, those specific uh, topics accelerate progress, and in a year's time come together and, and we hope really demonstrate how people from all walks of life are, are stepping up to, to make positive change. Wow. And just to kind of put some numbers towards what you were mentioning, I read the Institute for Economics and Peace in a recent report said 1.2 billion people uh, lived in 31 countries that are not sufficiently resilient to withstand ecological threats. 
and more than 1 billion people face being displaced within 30 years as the climate crisis and rapid population growth drive this increase in migration with huge impacts. And, you know, it, and they kind of break it down in terms of different threats. Some countries such as India and China are most threatened by water scarcity, for example, while others such as Pakistan, Iran, Kenya, Mozambique, and Madagascar face a combination of threats. Um, and, and one thing that was pretty striking to me is that 19 countries facing the highest number of threats, including water and food shortages and greater exposure to natural disasters, are also among the world's 40 least peaceful countries, as yeah. found by this IEP's first ecological threat register. So, I mean, it's... Um, and then there, and, and then you have a combination. Many of the countries that have these risk of ecological threats, including Nigeria, Angola, Burkina Faso, and Uganda, are also predicted to have the population increases. You know, and that will lead to massive displacement. That will be felt also all around the world, um, everywhere. So it's really not something that we could um, ignore. And um, I, I, there are many people still who think, oh, it's not here, it's not coming here. Well, there are different manifestations and the consequences and reverberations of this changes. Um, so I'm so um, happy to have this conversation with you today, especially considering how involved you and your company are in um, this endeavor. But I do also want to ask you, Shayo, about a different um, thing that is also an, an, enduring, an enduring pain, the manifestations of which um, have geographical differences in terms of local manifestations. But I want to speak about racial injustice a little bit. You've grown up in the U.S. Now you're in London, but I know you've also worked here in the U.S. for a long time. Um, I wanted to ask you, and any comment you must, you you might have, particularly in terms of, I'm curious, how does the post George Floyd murder, how do those events look like to someone who is currently out of the U.S. but spent so much time here, and you still have family? How does it look like from over there? considering how much of you has always been here? <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's a great question. Um, it was really tough. It, it remains really tough. Um, to be honest, the day after I saw the video, I really stayed in bed for several more hours than usual, just feeling really beat up by the world and, um, you know, really thinking, 400 years on, we are still fighting this fight. And like I said, at the beginning of our conversation, I can't remember if it was before or after we started recording, you know, I thought we had settled this debate. I thought we had settled the debate about whether Black Lives Matter or not globally. Um, and to know that, that we are reopening that conversation and, and, you know, this has been happening for a long time. Police brutality against Black people is not new. But to see it in such a visceral, brutal, um, you know, murder in public daylight was was really, really, really challenging. It also brought back personal experiences that I had in the U.S. Um, when I was living there as a, as a young Black woman, um, both when I was very, very young, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old, 
through to when I started out in employment and, you know, people making assumptions about what you do. I was in a legal field. Um, so people making assumptions about what you do in that field because of the way you look, you couldn't possibly be here to, um, you know, on behalf of a client, you're, you probably are the client because you've stolen something, that type of, that type of engagement. So a lot of personal memories were, were drummed up from that, as well as experiences of just being fearful for my two brothers, because the reality is, uh, as much as this happens to Black women, it happens to Black men in in significantly greater numbers. And so there are a lot of days when I'm here in the UK feeling fearful for my, for my brothers, two Black men living in, in the US. And I have two Black nephews who are five and uh, just, just born in April. So I question, you know, at what age do they go from being cute and being able to run around to being a threat? You know, they're young Young black men as young as 12 have been shot by police for doing nothing other than being black. So it's been really, really, really challenging. Um, and I would say what has really struck me is how important it was so wonderful to see the outpouring of support from all over the world by way of protests. I read that the biggest protests in Europe were actually in Germany, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so as somebody who grew up in the U.S. but is now living in Europe, I think one of my, um, one of the things I really wanted to encourage people here to do is to not see this as an American problem. You know, there there is a tendency because the U.S. is so brutal in the way that it um, demonstrates its racism there is a tendency for other countries to feel a little bit like they're off the hook because maybe they don't shoot black people, you know, they just hold them down from economic opportunities or, or whatever. And so I really tried to, in conversations with people here where they would say, gosh, it's so horrible what's happening in the US. And I said, yes. And I think this is an opportunity to really look at inequality because that's really what this is about. It's about believing that the life of somebody is worth less either because of the color of their skin or because of their religion or whatever it is. Inequality is inequality is inequality. And so one of the things that I've been doing as somebody living in the UK, living in Europe, is to really say, yes, by all means, say Black Lives Matter. Yes, by all means, go out on the street and you know protest. But turn the mirror on your own society as well. Turn the mirror on your own society in a way that really lets you investigate how are the how are the um, most downtrodden in my society being treated here? And I really want you to go out and march for that as well, because in some cases here in Europe, it's actually not black people. It's it's different communities. And I think until we recognize that this inequality is at the root of everything, even the climate crisis that we were just talking about, and we work to tackle that, I think until we have that at the heart of everything we do, we will continue to fight this battle. Thank you so much for um, so many insightful and wise and really important observations um, coming from um, your own lived experience. I'm very grateful that um, you wanted to share some of those. And you've said so many important points about, I mean, you've broadened it up in ways that were so inclusive and acknowledging of different forms of oppression um, 
I started with the one in the United States spurred by the recent events during the summer, which is just the latest manifestation or the most vocal one of so many that happen, as you say. And then the then you mentioned the, the mirror that we all have to take both as individuals and societies and to realize how many injustices are there around us. And um, you shared a little bit of your insights, which I also appreciate in terms of what we could do. And those are the tough conversations that societies engage or don't engage thanks to individuals who start them and individuals who want to have that dialogue in a way, and that also gets to complication, that, that gets complicated because different people have different visions about how the conversation should look like and what healing should look like and what reconciliation should look like. But I think the most important thing, um, and especially now that I live in the US and I've lived here back and forth, um, you know, just to really learn and listen to those people with humbleness of, having your experiences, but just learning that local manifestation that you might not have been aware of and the reverberations of it. And just trust that those people know better than what you might think, you know, and um, that is, and, and, and hope that you will have an interlocutor who will um, accept your willingness to learn. And um, I think that I, when you spoke about Europe as well, of course, as a Bosniak, considering Bosnian genocide and considering yeah. what we went through in terms of uh, genocide and slaughter because of who we are, that was the local manifestation of oppression that turns out genocidal in some locations, but it turns elsewhere into this very long oppression that could be more visible or not depending on the, the the geography and these conversations are very important and we talked a little bit about before we started recording about the importance of environment and leadership where these conversations can be more fruitful yeah or where these conversations can be led into destructive actions and behaviors of individuals who might have uh, some different visions of how we should all live together despite our differences right yeah. um, Exactly. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I just want to build on on what you said about listening and learning, because I think it's incredibly important. Um, And I would go one step further. I've been encouraged, like I said, by the number of people that have come out in support, both at an individual level, but also, you know, people who run their own businesses and are really thinking about, you know, what can I do with my business and how do I make change? I think a couple of things really struck me. One was the number of people that reached out to me saying, you know, I really don't know, saying, you know, first I'm here for you, what can I do, which was wonderful. And then also saying, I really, I feel so powerless as an individual against this huge um, global multi-generational challenge, you know, what, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are, we are, it it is a big struggle, right? We are going to have to keep waking up to it every day and thinking about it every day in order to make progress on it. It's, it's, it's constant work. Um, And I would say there are not necessarily simple, but practical things that each of us can do. So for example, one of the people that reached out to me was a student at Cambridge University where I was living. And they said, you know, I just don't know what I can do. And I said, one idea for you you are in 
a university course in one of the most prestigious universities in the world. <laughs> there are, I think, 150 of you in your course, and there is one Black person. Mm -hmm. So rather than waiting for the Black person to say, hey, why is there only one Black person on this course? You and 10 of your white classmates should get together and go to the dean and say, hey, why is there only one Black person on this course? Mm -hmm. And you doing that will mean that next year there will be maybe 10 Black people on that course. And then the year after that, there will be maybe 20 Black people. And that will change the trajectory of those 10 people's lives in a way that will enable them to get into the upper echelons of power that Cambridge University catapults you to. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to remember the huge nature of the problem and to really get quite practical about what is it in my own life where I can take responsibility and use my platform and privilege to support other people, not just waiting for them to, you know, help me figure out how to do it or for them to do it themselves. And then on the business side, just because I spend a lot of my time thinking about that, I saw a really powerful tweet. <laughs> Those words aren't always said, but I did see a really powerful tweet. Yeah. And, you know, there was a, a campaign, I think, on Instagram or Twitter for businesses to essentially post a black square and say, you know, mm -hmm. I really care about this issue, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, but the tweet said, thank you for posting a black square. Now, can you please post a picture of your executive team? Mm -hmm. So to this point about turning the mirror on yourself, it's really, really not easy, but it's definitely easier to say black lives matter in the tweet or in a post or in a, in a, in an ad. It's much harder to say, how are we doing on our diversity numbers? How many people of color are in our management team? How many people of color are cleaning the building? And why are those two numbers so different? And I think until we all start doing that, um, you know, we are going to keep finding ourselves in these dramatic moments of, and you know, that's how change happens. So, it's really positive that we have those dramatic moments of protest, mm -hmm. but we've got to start doing more work in the interim at an individual and, and um, institutional level to really make the progress and, and to be a part of the solution in those very practical ways. Yes, um, thank you for sharing all those. Uh, it, it's so good that you also mentioned uh, something about that necessity to um, engage in healthy and meaningful promotion of diversity in companies as well, considering your own experience um, there. And um, it kind of, when you, when you were talking about so many things came to my mind, but I was thinking about the idea of, um, I guess, belonging and uh, the idea of where we belong or where we're made to belong and who are we made to uh, belong somewhere and why and why not? Why are we excluded of belonging to some uh, larger identities and groups? Which kind of leads me to this idea of um, your third culture, I mean, third kid culture identity and the mixture of it. And uh, something that I've experienced in my own ways in, uh, in so many situations and circumstances, but precisely that thing about answering the question, where are you from? <laughs> Yeah. And then sometimes maybe the additional word, no, 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 but where are you really from? You know, like the one that leads to another and lead, depending on the, uh, I guess, circumstances and geography, but, um, and there's no simple answer. And sometimes you just engage and sometimes you're just like, uh, 
Do you want the short version or the long version is usually what I go with. But I did want to ask you, uh, you know, um, considering your experiences as well, um, tell us a little bit about that part of your background and both the opportunities and the challenges it has presented for you. Sure. Um, so, I mean, where to begin? So I was born in Japan, uh, born in Asia. I'm Nigerian by origin. Um, so very, very Nigeria, any of you that have met Nigerians will know Nigerians are a very strong culture and I'm Yoruba as well, very strong tribe. Um, grew up in the US, so I have an American accent. Uh, before that lived all over Africa and Europe. And I now live in London, which is a great place for a third culture kid because everybody here is sort of an immigrant in some way, shape or form. Um, and I'm married to a German. So it, it does make the question, where are you from? The longest conversation I have about that, interestingly, are with border agents. Oh, oh yeah. They see that I'm, you know, it says Tokyo, Japan in my birthplace. Then they look at me and see that I'm black and go, wait, that doesn't compute. So oh. we have a whole conversation about that. Um, so it's a real gift because it means, first of all, that I love to travel. Um, I have sort of itchy feet in that sense. I feel most comfortable on the road because I did so much traveling as a kid. All the different types of people I met throughout my life shaped my identity. Um, I think it's the reason it drives my husband crazy, but I'm a fence sitter. I will never come down on one side of an argument because I'm like, well, you can see this side of it. You can see that side of it. So I think it just teaches you that there are so many different ways to look at the world. And I mean, some of them are fundamentally wrong, you know, around like race and gender or whatever. But generally speaking, every perspective is is valid. And I think that's the power of growing up as a third culture kid. You get to see all of these different cultures and ways of doing things and experience them. And, and you integrate some of that into your life. And it just teaches you to, to always see the beautiful side of things and to see the di- beauty and diversity, if I can put it that way. Mm. I think it also means I'm comfortable in lots of different scenarios. So, mm. We talked a little bit about it before we started recording, the adaptability, right? Like just Exactly. You just kind of (laughs) grab a suitcase and go, you don't need very much to to feel at home, right? But I would say that's probably the challenge as well. And I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on this too. I really struggled for a while with the idea that I don't have a home. I was always attached, and a lot of this is also American marketing, you know. I was about to say a bad word, <laughs> but I was always attached to this idea of having, you know, like a big, you know, huge house where my whole family lived and we had lived there for generations and you could always go back there at Christmas and the tree was always decorated the same way. You know, this, this thing that I never really had, the sense of this is the place that I go when I want to go back to feeling, you know, as close to um, the childhood version of myself uh, as one can get. And I think it's only in recent years that I've, although I used to say this to people, you know, home is where the heart is, where my family is. I always used to say that when people ask me where home is. I don't think I ever really meant or believed it, to be honest, until this pandemic. And I've realized that actually, I love London. If you ask me any time, you know, before February of this year, I would have said London is my home. That's where I love. I love being here. I know every street. I know, you know, every cafe owner, I have like my, my places that I go, I'm, it's very familiar to me. Mm. 
But the fact that my family isn't here other than my husband, the fact that my sister is an ocean away, my parents are an ocean away, a lot of my very close friendships are an ocean away. And before when I could just hop on a plane to go and have that connection, I really didn't notice it as much. But now I really feel um, dislocated somewhat and that I'm longing for that rootedness, not of a place in the way that I used to perhaps think about it, but of relationship to my family and wanting wanting them to be closer and more accessible and, and more connected with them every day in a way that I haven't been able to in the last few months. So yeah, it comes with lots of great opportunities being a th- third culture kid, but it certainly comes with that sense of constant dislocation and that sense of constant not ever being quite settled. I'd love to hear about your experience, though. um, Thank you for asking. I think this is one of the most intimate, most complicated issues that people who experience this kind of uprootedness in different manifestations go through because it's a it changes who you are and I think that there is a nuance that's very important in terms of acknowledging how there are people who move somewhere uh, like in European Union where you had the free zone and free work permits and you just decide oh I don't want to live here today let me check out Paris or let me check out Germany to you know kind of experience new life and get a change and then people who end up as refugees or who are forcefully removed from their homes. And then there are classifications and nuances of horrors that these people go through. Some who end up, you know, uh, losing a member and some who end up losing 50 members of their family. Um, I mean, I was so touched that, I mean, 15 days ago, we saw a post that went viral about a Bosniak, Bosnian Muslim man who, after the war, as a refugee, moved to Sweden and just recently buried the remnants of his destroyed house in Bosnia. So basically he, you know, went back, there's nothing, there's just a plot of land, the leftover of, I don't know, some bricks. And then he posted a big table beating my house. I don't know when did it build in 1972 to 1990 something when it was destroyed. What, I mean, that we don't see that ever, rarely, but what a manifestation of sorrow, of a closure in a way that we don't end up usually thinking about in terms of what home is, and it is humans, but it's also where those humans habituate, and yes, those bricks are material, but it is the human experiences and the memories and the destruction of it that happens within different you know, circumstances. And that was, I I really just got a goosebumps. And then there are so many different sort of persecutions and oppressions that end up um, forcing people who sometimes luckily uh, manage to get away, even from very authoritarian regimes. And we're seeing, you know, because of the way that I'm involved in, in, in terms of what I read and in terms of what we in the family kind of deal with in terms of free speech and how free speech and lack of free speech yeah. in the Middle East and unfortunately in many Muslim-majority countries. And I'm Muslim and I always say this not because I'm Islamophobic or anti-Muslim, but because I care about, you yeah. know, all these injustices that happen over there. How, you know, activists uh, for women's rights, how all these people often get tortured and get imprisoned and then some of them who end up wanting to escape and having to seek asylum somewhere else so the ruptures 
vary and yeah. I'm not trying to diminish any of that um, nostalgia that one might feel I just um, acknowledge it in different ways and I can only imagine and keep imagining the different horrors and I usually go into horrors because that's kind of uh, where uh, where where I have been involved with professionally in the past kind of decade and the necessity for change. And yes, of course, that nostalgia, I mean, my family is dispersed. I mean, luckily I, and unpredictable in a completely unpredictable ways, I ended up back in the United States um, in the same way they are, that I unexpectedly ended up in Turkey, uh, you know, in 2012 when I moved there. And there's and life is about phases. And I have been, um, I have gone through some very bad ruptures and really difficult uprootings. I have known people who have gone through many worse ones so I have to keep vigilant about you know um, those around me in terms of acknowledging who they are yeah. but I have never I, I have never and that's the thing that I have never had besides that idea of my home where my parents are which is in Sarajevo now and that idea of where they are I mean and, and, and now I have my own family but I was living in Istanbul thinking that Istanbul would be where we would end up living and we lived there for five years and then we changed again and started and then lived in you know Massachusetts and then we came here and I'm tired. I'm really tired of being uprooted. Yeah. I really am. The more I um, grow old, I uh, grow old, uh, you know, the more I keep, you know, the more my family grows in a way, I see the necessity, like you said, Absolutely, of first having that spiritual and rooted, I mean, connectedness with the roots yeah. of who we are as a family, as ethnicity, of the history, regardless of where I live. And I try to instill that to my sons, starting from trivial things, which are not trivial, like food or the name that I choose to give them, to the kind of cartoons and the language that I teach them, because I want them to have that sort of perspective wider perspective of the world in terms of who their parents uh, are where they come from and I think that time matters in the sense of precisely creation of that those new memories um, I haven't been ever enough in a place un unfortunately or, or, I don't know I, I can't even say unfortunately anymore that's just the way it is um since I've been 13 I kept moving back and forth and just I can only hope right now I'm in DC and I like this city um but I think that what also matters is not just I think that it's not just that you like the place you live it's really I think the safety and the possibility of you being able, of you, uh, a human, of first being safe, truly safe. I mean this in the most physical point of view. And then to have the freedom to be who you are, mm. whatever then end up being. And I don't even want to get into that. You know, it's kind of, it reminds me of that, what is it called? Maslow pyramid of realization that you know first you need safety and food and then get on let alone to intellectual realization and self-realization and thriving i yeah. think that that is um i think that that's why i always um try and want to remain humble because of who i am and in terms of where i come from because i know fragility in a way that 
I am scared of stability because stability is your version. Yeah. 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 So when we speak about homes, I can tell you so much. And it's so important what you mentioned in terms of the pandemic and how we, me and my sisters think about our family and the necessity and hopefulness of maybe wanting to make more conscious choices of trying to maybe be closer to each other if we can. Um, but I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a different world compared to how our parents lived and everybody lived in the same village. And I, I always get back to what my mom said and says, I am happy if you're happy wherever you are. Mm. And I think that that really matters. And the idea of happy, of course, might change throughout different phases of our life. But it's just good to think about and to stay grateful about what one might have and to think about what others might not have. And that's it's good to have that idea of just for me in particular occasion having the physical safety and then after then you go through that levels of okay so now you're here now you're in London but what are you potentially doing with this for people that you care about over there and how that keeps you connected to your home how that keeps you connected to your roots and it's um like you said it's a thing that one struggles with because when somebody asks you where's your home it's a really complicated and different difficult question because the first thing that comes to my mind is my parents home where I also live but that's also not the home where I was born and so it changes um but I think that um, as we move on and hopefully I think that it matters to have it matters to have a place where one ends up settling to create those new memories for whatever one ends up choosing in terms of creating nuclear new families etc but I think that it was just so interesting that it reminded me of different migrations and immigrations that humans engage in and how those are consequential for the ideas of home and what is left of homes and how they're destroyed and built, which leads me to the idea of resilience um, and the idea of dignified resilience, which inspired this podcast as well in terms of so many humans I know and so many stories and so many different manifestations of, of, of um, talking about this topic. And so I would like to also ask you, considering that you worked so much with so many companies with Leaders Quest and you've supported cultivating resilience of others and individuals and companies, but how do you cultivate your own resilience though? What do you do to kind of stay um to stay resilient or to keep honing that muscle because i think it's not just a given or a granted yeah it's a great question and it's actually really for me connected to the conversation that we were just having um i really try to be very anchored in not just who i am but who who the lineage that i come from Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very powerful lineage of incredibly resilient people. So to pick up on the theme of migration, my grandfather on my mother's side was born in a tiny village in Lagos, sorry, in Nigeria. Um, very, very, very poor, had four wives and 16 children, no food, nothing to do. So he picked up one day his whole family of 20 people and they just began walking from Nigeria until they got to Burkina Faso, an entirely different country. Um, 
in search of better economic opportunities. And for you to do that takes courage, takes hope, takes a belief in a better future, takes, you know, care for your family and, and all of those things. And I can trace a direct lineage between his act of courage, stepping out of that village for the first time, not knowing what he was going to encounter, but still believing it was the right thing to do. Um, to me sitting here having this conversation with you, right? He he cultivated that in my mother, who also grew up very poor. There were a lot of kids to feed and not a lot, not a lot going around. So she ended up going back to Nigeria. Um, and you've probably seen kids in different parts of Africa, different parts of the world who really sell knickknacks on the side of the street to make ends meet, to put themselves through school. That was my mother. She, you know, worked really hard from basically the day she was born and was able to get herself all the way through law school. Um, but not only that, she then had four children, took a career break to raise us, um, and then went back into being a lawyer and is now a very successful government lawyer. So, my resilience really comes from knowing that those qualities are in my blood. And I try to really just connect with that sense of courage, that sense of hope, that sense of focus um, whenever I meet any challenges. And, and that seems to, to really give me the fuel I need to keep going. That was so beautifully said. Um, and uh, of course, like you said, that it comes from my blood is a very powerful yet uh, such a truthful um such a truthful idea that is kind of also guiding like in terms of guiding light for me personally both in terms of who i am but also the kind of things i want to do in life or that i have been trying to do but also in in and then it can go depending on personality and character i think from the most personal family levels to the idea of what your people, what once people has gone through historically. And then in, in my case, in terms of against the historical revisionism and denial and the increasing denial of the Bosnian genocide and the history of persecution. And just kind of that self-awareness, uh, which, which, which matters. And, um, so that is, but I do want to mention that it's not a given. And that's the thing. I recently, especially after that humongous Beirut explosion, there was a lot of people who were so angry online who were saying, we don't want this talk about resilience anymore. We're tired of resilience. We're tired of just this idea. And I was looking at that and I didn't want to engage because I understood people were hurt. But what, what I was trying to say is that resilience in my dictionary, the way I understand it and the way some scientists also define it because there are many ideas of it, does not just mean that you sit there and that you think that, okay, now this happened and I just am left alone because you are left alone, but that also just means moving towards activism politically if that means putting that government out the next time. Or, you know, so, so in order to be able to say, well, resilience shouldn't be just the only option for people who are in um, difficult situations, which is true. And we, there are myriads of different situations where people might need some help from the government, et cetera. Resilience means that for me, you are aware and you're channeling energy in that bad moment in a way that might allow you not just to bounce back because bouncing back to normality is not necessarily what's good, but hopefully eventually grow. And that is difficult 
in different circumstances and it's not easy for an individual to be resilient in a society that's falling apart or that's completely oppressive and authoritarian. But it also just means that in, in particular circumstances when change is necessary, then the only way you have to is to adapt and work towards the modes that will lead to that change, whether that's better governance or whether that's something within your community as well. And, um, and it's, really, it's really tough uh, to, to be resilient, especially in when everything around you seems um, like it's falling apart. But that's why the leadership again matters from the most local level and those brave people within family like your grandfather or like a leader of a company or let alone and going up and forth or NGO, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of communities that um, kind of can hone and bring hope all people to move them forward to give them strength and uh so so and that kind of can bring uh, the dynamic into a more constructive movement uh so much we touched upon so much i could speak about uh but i do also want to kind of as we go towards the end of our conversation, I always uh, have something that I called five sweet, sweet questions because I also want to um, make my listeners and viewers get to know uh, my guests in even a more uh, personal level. And so I have five questions for you. You can answer in any way you want. Some people give light answers and funny. Some people give more deep, philosophical, serious questions and all are welcome. Uh, so the first question is, what's the current... Um, global pandemic em emergencies over. And I know that whenever, wherever we might be, that might be in terms of perception and reality different, but um, is there something that you would not want to forget from this period of related to COVID-19 disruptions? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things. So um, I think I've always equated being busy with being happy and effective <laughs> so I never sit still I was always on a plane um working seeing family and actually slowing down and being present can be the most useful and effective thing you can do um mm -hmm. in some cases so it was an enforced slowdown but it really helped me remember the power of reflection and of pausing mm. and of taking time to do things you enjoy, not because you have to, but because you want to and making the space to actually do that. Um, so how, as things start to go back to normal, I can normal, you know, didn't use that word necessarily, but as things start to move into a different phase, I can feel that creeping back in, that sense of needing to be busy all the time. So I want to hold on to the pause, the slowing down, the reflection, and take that forward. There's so much wisdom coming out of you. I completely agree, agree with what you're saying. And I think it just, uh, I think it takes just a lot of conscious, hopefully, habits changes um, that we can hope to retain after and as things um, keep moving forward. So. Next question, which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful. <laughs> um, I think I'm, I can compartmentalize things quite easily. Um, 
so I've been able to, yeah, I really struggled to answer the question, how are you during the pandemic? Because actually, like I just said, I was able to slow down and reconnect to myself and to my family in a way that I hadn't for a very long time. So personally, I was doing really well. And within my little sort of bubble, things were great. And I was able to sort of compartmentalize that from everything that was going on beyond mm-hmm. my home. And then when I connected to that, of course, that was incredibly difficult and painful. But it was quite easy for me to then go back into my personal bubble in a way that I think was quite helpful. <laughs> yeah. And um, so then now that you said that you're good at compartmentalizing so when you have 30 minutes of free time how do you pass that time and free time means free time like no work no compartmentalizing how do you pass that time this is a good question i mean it depends really so if i just say what i did today because i deliberately took the morning off after quite a busy week Mm -hmm. um i rode my bike to the farmer's market uh got some veggies for the week and then went to a cafe with the paper had brunch read the paper a bit um and then came home and did a podcast so I think this is a good today's a good example perhaps of how I would use that time I think the other thing I usually try to do these days is cook a really extensive recipe so deliberately kind of pick a complicated recipe and take the time to cook and enjoy food that's another thing from lockdown actually that I want to take forward because I would never make time it was always about the quickest most efficient meal I can make and now I'm trying to slow down spend a bit more time cooking because I actually really enjoy it Mm. yeah oh wow you know I'm thinking about slow cooking and I'm thinking about my two kids downstairs and I'm thinking oh I'd love to have some time for slow cooking but like but then again it is really uh, important like I what pandemic made me think about is how cooking can be so enjoyable um, and meaningful in a way that you just philosophize about it more in terms of family gathering of it and I come from a family that always had meals together and we would wait for each other to come back from work or home or school when we could to have that catch up uh, around it and how I want to hopefully instill that uh, tradition with, within my family and so much of it revolves around food honestly and uh, so so I'm trying to and I'm really realizing the the philosophical metaphorical importance of gathering around a meal and especially if that meal is delicious. Um, and so <laughs> no one wants to stay if the meal is not good. <laughs> they don't want to gather around it. <laughs> desperate times called desperate measures and you just say whatever is left over. But um, so, so yeah, I completely agree with um, what you're saying. And, uh, and I have started, you know, I haven't watched, you know, during the pandemic, so many people online have shared some deep thoughts about how many old films they watched and so many, you know, this director, I honestly have not in the past. In, in the first few months, we did not have time. I think we were just sleeping at 9.30 because we were so exhausted and things psychologically of obviously dealing with the kids adapting, but trying to understand what's going on. And then we just, I think during summer started understanding that, you know, watching an hour of TV is actually relaxing and, um, I started enjoying cooking shows, like, you know, there's the cooking shows, but in a way that there's those shows they described recently, um, the, the life of a chef and, uh, is it called, I don't know what's the, the oh, chef, uh, chef's table. 
Yes, yes. And I really enjoyed it. And I watched the episode with the Turkish chef, Musa Dadeviran, and I bought the cookbook and it's there and it's beautiful because I so much love his story and what he's trying to do with his endeavors. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm totally gotten philosophical about food during the pandemic. That's what it, I, so Asma Khan, I don't know if you've seen oh, yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. She has a restaurant here in London and actually you're making me think I should buy her cookbook as well. I've been to her restaurant so many times. <laughs> is it as good as, as this? Delicious. And she has such a cool personality and such a warm, embraced personality. And she seems like, I love her little like comments that she would give to her guests, at least as it was filmed on the screen. So these are the kind of, I think, um, things that I think I like to watch these stories that give insight into humans lives and realities and it, it just reminds you how each walking person actually has such a story behind yeah. and uh, how good it is to be um curious and also you know kind and hopefully um bring this um idea of conversation and approaching um just to a more um i don't know to more positive level considering yeah. there's so much bombardment of bad news constantly that it gets absolutely exhausting for for um, existence for me personally i just have to shut myself out and literally consciously seek for good stories to remind myself yeah of, of it um so that said um last question or actually there was one more question maybe it's related to cooking but i don't know what skill or craft would you like to master i love music mm-hmm. um i sing a little bit mm-hmm. but i would love in my head i would love to be one of those musicians you know in the corner in a coffee shop trying to get their music career going mm-hmm. sultry beautiful tones playing a guitar a ukulele or a piano or something like that um i play no instruments so this dream is probably not going to happen um <laughs> but the skill of craft huh Never say never. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Maybe there's a second career of coffee shop musician in my future. Um, you know, that might grow up into something. Yeah. But I just, I love when people can make music. It's so special. I just feel like it, like food, actually. It is one of those things that unites people across cultures, um, across any kind of divide. Just the beauty of, of somebody playing the guitar or the piano and um that music how it unites us it's yeah Yeah. so and and this is so funny but do you think also because i feel that precisely because of being that and having that third culture kid background how you're also even more open to listening music around the world and appreciating it in a way that almost feels like it's not you know, I love Bossa Nova, for example. I've never been to Brazil. I don't know where it comes from, but I love it so much, you know? And it's also just been the curiosity of, you know, learning. And I I love on radios or, you know, always seeking world chill music. It just <laughs> all sorts of melodies. But you're right how music is something we don't think about, how it also unites us. Everyone always talks about how bizarre my Spotify playlists are. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what's coming next. One, you know, one minute you're in Afrobeat somewhere in the corner of, you know, the next minute it's like, you know, proper music from the Southern United States coming from the sort of traditions that are out of there. And it's, yeah, it's a real mix and I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) 
Absolutely, exactly. So Shaya, my last question, sadly, um, because I'm having so much fun. Are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? I would say that most of my friends, it's such a difficult question, right? Because it depends, what do you mean by similar? So I, I really have friends from all over the world. I actually have best friends from different periods of my life. So when I was 13, I was in a little crew of gals. Uh, one was from Korea, one was from Poland, and I'm obviously Nigerian. And then when I moved to the US, my best friend was Bhutanese. Uh, my other best friend was from Cameroon. So geographically, I have a very diverse group of friends. I would say from a mindset perspective, we're all pretty aligned. And actually, I'm not super proud of that. Um, I feel like I need more, more diversity in, in my friend group from that perspective. But I have one friend who's very, very different to me uh, in the sense that I'm quite I'm quite a structured person. I think I'm, I think I'm still quite fun, but I kind of do things in a particular way. And she's compartmentalized. Exactly. I compartmentalize. Now is the time for work. Now is the time for fun. (laughs) Um, And she really challenges me in a super positive way. I love her to death. Um, She's one of my best friends in the world, but she, you know, is never on time to a meal. You know, I'm in a, I'm in a career that's essentially, I've been in consulting for the last 10 years, a version of consulting. And she's a poet and an artist and, and really gets me to um, go beyond my comfort zone in terms of thinking about structure and time and all of that stuff, which is really, really useful. But you're making me think I need to actively seek out some friends who are very different to me. Oh, my God. But you're so right precisely about that friend. I was uh, My sister who lives in New York visited me a month ago and she was just, I was so good to have her literally like this walking alarm that was behind me and that was completely reminding me consciously about this idea precisely of productivity where we were sitting you know we were sitting and I said okay now kids you can take care of the kids while I go and while I do something because I felt that that is an opportunity that I must not waste the time exactly she was like excuse me what are you doing here we are, and we're going to sit here together because that's what we used to do, and we're going to enjoy making relationships better. We're going to enjoy being around each other, which is when we all we really used to do that. And I was yeah. so lucky, and I told her I needed you to be here for two weeks to really kind of shake me up um, in a way that made my life better. Um, it reminded me precisely of some of the things you touched upon about what what is how do we measure productivity that doesn't mean obviously that you can you know um, disregard your deadlines for something but that you you that we are not under this self pressure yeah all the time because we completely miss out on opportunities to refuel ourselves in a way that might make us more productive eventually when we get to deal with that deadline yeah. so um so yeah that moment really friend is important the poet <laughs> is important. Her. she's you a good know. one i need more of those but i need to keep yeah, her absolutely, <laughs> absolutely people who know us and who know how to like remind <laughs> us and to really get us out of our comfort zones whatever those might be <laughs> oh my goodness shia this is an amazing uh it has been so great <laughs> and we talked before we started recording it about uh, how Zoom is changing our lives and 
I really feel like I've been uh, on a coffee with really, really good friend. And even though we haven't seen each other since uh, 2015, I feel like we're just like it was yesterday that we saw each other. And and, and that is, um, I really, um, I'm glad that we humans can you know like snap like that but then snap back it doesn't happen with everybody though let me tell you i'm sure you've had that experiences and absolutely when you mentioned those friends best friends from different phases um i read this morning i just texted with my really 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 good friend from sarajevo and we've had phases where because of life we just had we just i didn't care about her but it just i wasn't we weren't and then we reconnected in a way that uh really makes me feel like she's here and, and reminded me how much i missed her and how much friendships are important so mm-hmm. if texting and zooming is what it's going to take yeah. right now we're going to do it before we um get to see each other next but i do hope that if you come over here uh, you have some family close by as we realize we get to really see each other in person i'm so grateful for all the wisdom that you shared on so many different topics so genuinely and candidly and I already told you that you changed my life in terms of seeing travel in a completely different way now and I think that that's here to stay um so I'm very grateful for um what you know for teaching me and opening my horizons and I hope that some of our listeners and viewers might um, experience the same sort of uh, widening of their own horizons uh, thanks to this conversation in whatever way considering we touched upon many topics but thank you do you have any message or any comments uh, right now before we close it just to say a big thank you to you it's been such an honor to have this conversation with you to be invited to be on the podcast and I just felt really like I was sitting in a cafe having a chat with a friend and we touched on so many big and small issues and that just shows the real gift that you have for facilitating conversation. So it's been a pleasure for me and you will definitely be seeing me in DC. Get the spare room ready. Looking forward so much, Shai, to seeing you. And I really hope that, you know, we get to have more conversation in the future as I'm sure you are engaged in many more beautiful, important endeavors. And to all our listeners around the world, please uh, stay tuned for more conversations from people from all around the globe. And as I always remind you, hold tight to those you love. And see you soon.